You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Sarah Ellison, a reporter here at The Post. Without the fall of Harvey Weinstein, we may not have had a Me Too reckoning. My guest today was early to the idea that Weinstein was a serial predator, but his excuse me, but his 2002 New Yorker profile didn't cross the threshold to fully bring to light the depths of Weinstein's predation. I am pleased today to be joined by Ken Oletta, whose new book, Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence, goes back to the beginning of Weinstein's story to help us understand the making of the now infamous former producer. Welcome, Ken. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Sarah. I want to start off by asking you a simple question, which is that if you had to pick one word to describe Weinstein, what would it be? I I, I come up with two words, impulse control problems, or three, really, but uh, volatile, out of control, are certainly words that Volatile would be a word, a single word. Um, I mean, you say in the book that he was, that self-control was, he was a man of little self-control. And you go on to describe that in such detail. When did you first sniff out that that was part of his personality and also that paved the way for him to assert his power over other people? Well, when I profiled him in 2002, it was apparent to me. The portrait I portrayed, I I painted of Harvey back in in 2002, was of a volatile, out-of-control man who who couldn't control his appetite, couldn't control his his temper, couldn't control... I mean, if he got a pack of cigarettes, he would rip off the top because he didn't have the patience to pick out a single cigarette or take the cellophane off the wrapper, who would insist that three Diet Cokes be placed in front of him, even though he drank one at a time, because he was afraid that the second one wouldn't be available when he finished the first. He was just a, a, a basically a, a big brute, but also a very talented brute. And I portrayed him in that profile as both a monster in terms of the way he, he dealt with people, uh, but also an incredible talent. I mean, you think about the movies that he and Miramax pioneered, uh, Shakespeare in Love, My Left Foot, Pulp Fiction, The Crying Game, uh, Sex Lives and Videotape. I mean, the list goes on and on. Quite an extraordinary list of, of movies. So Harvey was a man, despite his appetites, despite his volatility of, of great talent. I want to talk a little bit. Um, you make clear in the book that Harvey's proclivities were not about sex, but about power. And we all know by now that he was, you know, some of his proclivities were the worst kept secret in Hollywood. And yet he remained untouchable for the majority of his career, never facing repercussions. Can you set the record straight for us? What factors enabled him to suppress? all the damage behind his abuses of power? Well, his power, and he believed, as Donald Trump believes, that a key to power is people must fear you. And and people feared Harvey. They feared his 
his, his ability to get stories in the press that may be negative stories about you. They feared his money, that he would challenge you in court and you couldn't afford to go up against him. They feared that it would keep you out of roles in movies uh, that you may have wanted. Uh, they feared how he might harm you. And, and, um, and that was very real. And he knew that. And he, he used that power to scare people and keep them quiet. Let's talk about the dynamic between the two Weinstein brothers, which is one of the most fascinating aspects of the book, in my view. Um, you worked with Bob Weinstein throughout your reporting, and Bob famously turned on his older brother. As you write, uh, he's on the record for saying that there is no real human being there, referring to Harvey. Um, talk to us about their fallout and what it illustrates in the macro sense about Harvey's fall from grace. Well, here, uh, Bob and Harvey shared a bedroom in Flushing, Queens growing up. Bob was his equal co-partner at Miramax and at the Weinstein Company. They were best friends. Bob was the best man at, at Harvey's first wedding, though interestingly, not at his second wedding in, the, in, in, in this century, earlier in the century. But Bob constantly was frustrated that Harvey... Um, was too much of a narcissist, that he was out promoting himself and not promoting the movies, that his attention was being diverted by talk books and talk magazine and the fashion business and buying Halstead and all these other companies that were not central to the movie business, and frustrated that Harvey was out of control in his spending. I mean, he, he was making movies for much more money than he, he was supposed to be making them for. And he was spending money on private planes and, and, and picking up meals for people and buying his, his second wife, Georgina Chapman's, you know, her, her fashion dresses for, for people he wanted to invest in his company. So Bob, as a businessman, was growing increasingly frustrated by, by his brother's behavior. And yet... He felt that Harvey was central to the success of the company. So he didn't want to act against his brother. And he kept on hoping it was like a bad marriage. He kept on hoping that the marriage would get better tomorrow, but it didn't get better. And in the end, in the end, Bob voted with the board and his vote was critical to remove Harvey and basically fire Harvey from the Weinstein Company. I'd like for you to talk about uh, the revelations you made in your reporting about their mother, whom you call Mama Portnoy, Miriam Weinstein. Um, you said that Harvey and Bob appear to have been raised by wolves. Bob confirmed some of these characterizations by revealing stories of their childhood to you. How did the vestiges of their mother's temperament set Harvey up for um, his brash and sort of grotesque behavior that he's known for? Miriam was a very dominant person in the house. Max, the father, was a diamond cutter. He'd often come home late. Miriam would have dinner with the two boys uh, alone, usually. Uh, she, was, she yelled so frequently, Harvey, you're too fat. Harvey, why are you doing that? Harvey, shut up. Don't do this. Yelled so much that the friends, Harvey's friends, they played poker every weekend. But the friends refused to play poker at the Weinstein house. Why? Because they said Miriam yelled too much. It was too uncomfortable. And Harvey was the one to call him Mama Portnoy. Yet he was devoted to her as Bob was devoted to her. Yet when I asked Bob once in, in the book, I said, Bob, what, what do you see of your father, Max, and Harvey? And without hesitation, Bob said, I don't see Max 
see my in Harvey. I see my mother in Harvey. And the mother, that yelling that she did was very much a reflection of, of how the Merrimax offices were run. Harvey and his brother Bob were constantly yelling at people in those days and, and, and abusing people verbally. And, and that was very much a reflection of Merriam. But you can't blame Merriam for his sexual uh, behavior. Uh, you can blame her for yelling and 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 for think for Harvey allowing Harvey to think that yelling was normal. And what separated Harvey from Bob's personality and prevented Bob from taking advantage of his own power? Well, Bob Bob was a difficult person initially, as was Harvey running, and people were afraid of Bob. But Bob was a better human being than Harvey. And Bob was an alcoholic at one point who went through therapy, Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and righted his ship and, and basically became a very reflective, looking at yourself, accepting responsibility for your bad behavior uh, kind of a person. And, and his brother, he discovered, was not. I tell a story of they go to lunch one day with David Boyes, their attorney, and he coaxed David Boyes to, to speak to Harvey about how proud David Boys was for the success he had had, a farm boy growing up and becoming the successful lawyer that he was. And he hoped that David talking about that would allow Harvey maybe to look inside himself and take some pride and, and smell the roses a little more. And David Boyce talked about how proud he was of his life and how his parents would be so proud of the success he had. And at the end of the story, Bob had tears rolling down his cheeks. And, and Harvey looked at David Boyce and at Bob and said, why are you telling me that? What, what's this all about? He couldn't relate. And one of the ways I ended the book, I ended the book with a quote from Bob talking about his brother, talking about Harvey, saying, I learned, one of the things I learned about my brother, there's no human being there. There's not a person who has the ability to look inside himself, to acknowledge mistakes, to say reflectively, I, I want to be a better person. You write about Harvey's insecurities about his weight growing up. And I wonder, was he compensating for that? Does that play at all into... Um the way he acted later in life? Well, there's no question that he, he was very self-conscious about his weight. And there's an anecdote in the book, which I borrow from Jody Cantor and Meg Tuohy of the Times, who, who wrote it in their book. Harvey uh, assaulted this attractive model at the Cannes Film Festival in, in the south of France. And she raced into the bathroom and closed the door, locked the door and started screaming at Harvey, who cowered in the outside the door outside. Finally, she came out and went to the front door to exit the, the hotel suite. And he said to her as she's exiting, you don't like me because I'm fat. Clearly, he was very self-conscious <laughs> about his weight and about his looks. And. And, and that's just a reflection of it. So Harvey would, surprisingly, when he stayed at hotel suites, he'd go out to dinner. His assistant would stay in the suite waiting for him to come back. He'd enter the suite, and oftentimes he would just peel off all of his clothes 
and walk around the room naked. And Zelda Perkins, who was when she first started working as his London assistant, said, Harvey, what are you doing? Why are you taking off your clothes? And he said, oh, Zelda, this is normal. I'm, I'm hot. It's OK. Don't be a square. And Harvey would constantly try and normalize his abnormal behavior. You write so clearly about how he was not a savvy businessman. Um, he famously passed on acquiring Marvel. What characteristics pulled him to a, the higher echelons of power without that kind of business acumen? I think Harvey's narcissism got the best of him. He wanted to be Rupert Murdoch, Sumner Redstone, John Malone, Bill Gates. He wanted to be a mogul. And, and so he took his eye off the movie ball and started buying companies the fashion business, with his, which his second wife was in, 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 he buys Halston. He, he goes in the TV business. He, he's trying, he goes and talk books, talk magazine. Harvey wanted to become a mogul. And inevitably, when he did that, he took his eye off the movie ball and, and, and began to overspend and, and not make the kind of successful movies he had made uh, that won him so many Academy Awards. What was important to you personally to write this book, which looks at Harvey the person and the, create, and the creation of, uh, of the monster? I, I, I was interested. The reason I wanted to do a biography of him and, and thought there was a, a route to do it, I there were mysteries that I wanted to explore. Why did Harvey become the monster he became? Why did so many people enable his behavior over more than four decades by keeping their mouth shut? How did he use and abuse his power, which was part of getting away with this for so long? And then the mystery of the relationship between the two brothers. Young Bobby, as he was called, much to his chagrin when he was young, and, and Harvey were inseparable. And yet, in the end, Harvey sucker punched his, his brother Bob breaking his nose. And in the end, as I mentioned earlier, Bob provides the pivotal vote to fire Harvey. Um, your 2002 profile in The New Yorker um, came so close to revealing Weinstein's sexual misconduct, but it was just in the literal last minutes before the piece hit its deadline, you pulled back on some of the reporting. Um, Take us back to that moment and what it was like to pull the plug on, on that element of your piece. I had, um, I had heard from, now I can identify as I do in the book, Donna Gigliotti, who was the producer, one of the producers of Shakespeare in Love, that Harvey allegedly had, had raped Rowena Chu and, and got into a contretemps with his London assistant who defended Rowena Chu. The Perkins at the 1998 Venice Film Festival when when they were promoting uh, Shakespeare in Love. I can, I, but I couldn't get the woman to speak. I couldn't find Rowena. She was somewhere in Asia. I tracked down Zelda Perkins to Guatemala where she was raising horses, and she refused to speak to me and hung up the phone. And they, I knew they had signed non-disclosure agreements and been paid. I was told almost five hundred thousand dollars between the two of them. To, to, to keep quiet. I confronted Harvey in my final interview with him 
And it was just the two of us in a conference room. And I said, Harvey, tell me about what you did with Rowena Chu and Zelda Perkins at the 1998 Venice Film Festival. Harvey stood up, stood over me, clenched his fists. He's standing, I'm seated. His fists are clenched, his lip is trembling. And he says, if you write that, it will destroy my marriage and destroy the lives of my three teenage daughters. With him standing up and me sitting, I said, I'm, a, I'm an easy prey for a sucker punch. So I stood up and faced him face to face. The moment I stood up, Harvey did something really surprising. He started to cry. And I don't mean a tear trickling down his, his cheek. I mean bawling, crying out loud. It will destroy my marriage, et cetera, et cetera. But I was convinced he, he did it, but I didn't have, I had his denial and I had no evidence from women on the record saying, in fact, he was guilty of that. But then he, he's worried they're going to run it in The New Yorker. He calls up David Remnick, the editor, and asks if he can have a summit meeting with me and Remnick. He comes to the meeting and I, I came up with a strategy that maybe I could get this story out without getting the women to talk to me. If I find out how we paid the almost $500,000, did, did, did Disney, his parent company pay? Did Miramax, his company pay? And if either one was true, someone is probably going to jail. And I got my story. I don't need the woman to, to confirm anything if the company paid for the non-disclosure agreements. So I said, Harvey, I need to see tomorrow. It was a Tuesday. Tomorrow is Wednesday. The piece closes on Thursday. I need to see the canceled checks. And he rebelled. He said, I can't do that. But anyway, I said, tomorrow. He came back tomorrow with his brother Bob now and slid across the table two canceled checks from brother Bob, personal checks. That's how the money was paid. So I didn't have my story. And, and basically, it was confirming what Bob was saying was that I paid this money because I was saving my brother's marriage, which is the claim that Harvey was making. And we didn't have the woman. So Harvey then was still worried we would run it. David Remnick and I talked. He made the decision, which I totally backed. He said, Ken, we can't run the story. We're not the National Enquirer. We don't have any woman on the record saying that Harvey is guilty of this. And we have him denying that he was guilty of it, saying it was a consensual affair. How do we run this story? And I agreed with him and we couldn't run the story. So that's how close I came in 2002, but no cigar. And if you had gotten it across the threshold in 2002, what do you think the impact would have been? Do you think society would have reacted in the same way um, that it did you know, 15 years later? Probably it would not have reacted in the same way, but I think there would have been a reaction where Harvey would have been shamed. Harvey would have been vilified. Harvey may have lost his job. I mean, this is rape we're talking about or attempted rape. Actually, one of the things I found, and I'm, another reason I'm glad I didn't write this story then, I was told that he had raped Rowena Chu. When I interviewed Rowena Chu for the book, I found out she was not raped. He attempted to rape her and she escaped. So I, if I printed that she was raped, it would have been a false story right there. But nevertheless, that kind of behavior, even back in 2002, uh, would not have been easily acceptable. Now, would he have been fired the way he was in 2017? Maybe not. But, but it clearly, I think, would have prevented some other women from being Harvey's victims over the years. 
So let's fast forward to um, you know the Me Too moment. What was your personal reaction to learning of Ronan Farrow's reporting and watching the media storm um, after? I was thrilled. I thought this beast has been exposed. I was not competing with Ronan Farrow or the two New York Times reporters. I was off doing a book on something else. So I had no competitive juices flowing here. I mean, I just had a thrill that, that these three reporters, Ronan and the two Times reporters, had cracked the case and figured out a way to make women comfortable enough which I couldn't do in 2002. And I wasn't, other reporters, a couple of others reporters had tried over the years, couldn't get women to feel comfortable. One of the things they successfully did, which was quite brilliant, they got women to come together in groups. So they weren't a solitary figure saying, Harvey did this to me. Harvey did this to us. And, and it, it made them comfortable. And that's an extraordinary talent. So when people say to me, well, you know, the times had changed. The Times reporters wouldn't have had the story. Ronan wouldn't have had the story if the times hadn't changed. I think that's baloney. I think they made the times change and they got women to talk and they deserve the credit for that. And how much of the writing of the book was catharsis for you, having been on this story one way or another since 2002? Catharsis is not the word that springs to my mind. I think pain was the word that comes to my mind. I'm writing a book about a guy who I think is a monster. And yet I also have to have the discipline to be able to describe his whole life. And his whole life is not a stick figure, a monster figure. He made some amazing movies. He did some amazing things. He was very philanthropic. He was actually a pretty good father despite being a lousy husband. And so you have, in a biography, you have to tell a whole life. And sometimes it was a struggle because this was not a man I liked and a man I respected. Uh, and yet he is a human being and he has, and his life is not just one little side. And I'm not writing a prosecution brief. I'm writing about a person. And, and sometimes it was a struggle to do that because I really didn't like him. And I'm really glad I'm done with Harvey Weinstein now, but um, but I, I had a, a chore to perform and to write a, a, a biography of an entire person. And do you have any, you know, what's your feeling? Is it remorse? Is it regret? Is it something else for, um, you know, having these instances of abuse that happen to women um, after your story ran in 2002? Well, I have remorse, regret that, that um, I and other, other people were not able to expose them and maybe prevent that behavior. I have no regret or remorse for not writing the story as, as I knew it in 2002. I think that David Remnick made the right decision, which I approve. At the time, we, we didn't have the goods. And we're journalists. We have to be able to prove things, not assert things. And, and it would have just been an assertion had I run the story at the time. On the other hand, if, if I was able to prove it at the time, I have no doubt that we could have, it could have prevented some women from being raped by Harvey Weinstein. And in your view, what about society has changed between 2002 and 2017 and today? 
Well, just think about it, Sarah. You have in 2016, Bill Cosby is, is indicted and brought to trial. Roger Ailes in the summer of 2016 is fired for sexual misbehavior at Fox News. In the spring of 2017, eight, eight months or so before Harvey is exposed, Bill O'Reilly is exposed and fired from Fox News for abusing women. So things were changing, clearly were, were changing. Um, and, and that's, you know, a positive thing. But I still go back to the point I, I tried to make before, which is that despite the cultural changes in our society, the, the growth of feminism, um, Harvey, the, the work that those three reporters did in getting women to speak out and expose Harvey, which, which triggered the Me Too movement, and which also triggered the downfall of so many men who abused women, who, who came out in cases of Matt Lauer, you know, Les Moonves, Mario Batali, the list goes on and on. Um, we have an audience question here. Uh, Lisa from Texas asks, should those around Weinstein who enabled him be brought to justice? Well, the question is, how, how do you, what's the crime they committed is a question a lawyer would ask. If they claim they didn't know, um, and, and I claim, well, they should have known. Should have known is not did know. And so it's not clear. I mean, I don't know how you bring them to justice, except what you do is you shame them. You, you say, why didn't you speak out? And people should be embarrassed that those who knew. And in the book, I, I described some of those who did know, who should be shamed and embarrassed by it. And then the question of the people who knew he was cheating on his wife, but claimed they didn't know he was he was sexually assaulting women. And maybe many of them, I'm sure, are telling the truth in that. But is that because they didn't want to know? And they, and they and should they not have known? Should they not have poked and asked more questions? And were they selfish by not doing it, preserving themselves? And had they poked into this more, might they have prevented what hopefully I could have in 2002, Harvey's behavior and molestation of women? Talk to us, as you do in the book, about a few of those people who um, either we're trying not to know or went from denial to complicity. Who else um, is on that list of people who, who didn't want to know and looked the other way? Well, I mean, there, there were people who suspected or knew, and I quote Mark Gill, for instance, who was the president of Miramax at one point. And he said to me in the book, he said, I, any attractive woman who worked for me, I would not allow them to meet alone with Harvey Weinstein. Now, why? I mean, what did he suspect would happen? Clearly, he knew something. Amy Israel, other people I quote, saying the same thing as Mark did. They, they, they wanted to protect their employees. Well, you know, is there a point at which you blow the whistle and, and so you're protecting more than your employees? And, and that's one of the questions. But, you know, th many of these are good people. I, 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 I'm, they're not criminals. Um, and 
But do I believe that many more people should have come forward? And then there are people, Barbara Schneeweiss, who's a name that kept popping up in the trial, which I attended every day. I mean, she was basically dealing with the people Harvey was having an affairs with in many cases and trying to keep them on the reservation and not getting angry, pretending that they they could have roles in movies when the roles were already given to some other actors. And, And that her complicity enabling complicity is 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 clear throughout the trial steve hutensky who was harvey's business affairs representative who was a person who who went over to try and deal with zelda perkins and rowena chu uh in 1998 in the venice film festival his name is on the non-disclosure agreement which i published in the book if if you want anything from from the weinstein company if you want a reference go to steve hutensky his name is mentioned twice in those NDAs. And I confronted him, you know, he claims I was not the lawyer, you know, but, you know, he was his business affairs guy and he was in every meeting. Ken, I wish we could go on more, but I'm afraid we have to leave it there. We are out of time. Uh, Journalist and author Ken Oletta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.